The world is out of control. COVID, politics, your school life, how about just your parents? How is your little faith, your individual faith, supposed to guide you through a world that is out of control at every level? Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. I like to exercise. Um, I, that's fun for me. It's something I like to do. If you know, I have a, I have a gym in my garage, so that's really like an enjoyable thing to, for me to do on a daily basis. However, I handicap myself a little bit in that process because the part of it that I don't like is the diet part. Um, I, I have the diet of like a four-year-old. And um, a lot of times it's like I'll make my best effort, like I'll, I'll work out hard so then I'm hungry, so then I eat good food. And really, like, I, I would probably be pretty good at dieting in some way if, like, candy didn't exist. But no matter how hard I try, candy still does exist. And so then I see it and I'm like, that looks like breakfast. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I don't want any food because that I've, I've eaten, you know, and it, it was great. Uh, so that's really a problem for me. And, and as I was thinking about this, this chapter that we're in in Genesis, really what, what I was thinking about is that we are interested in following God right up until the point where there is really any difficulty doing it, right? Like if there's, if there's either an obstacle or just an opportunity that leads us away from the Lord, it's like we jump ship immediately. We set out with good intentions and we're like, man, I'm gonna, I'm following the Lord. Like it's, we're, we're gonna do this thing, right? Like me on a diet, right up until I'm standing in line at Quick Trip and I'm like, there's so many options, right? And, and that's what we do. We're like, as soon as there's something that can take us away, something that can hinder us from following God in any way, we just jump ship, we're out. You know, we're, we're okay being single, until we meet kind of anybody, like anybody. And, and like the thing we do is we, like, I, ho- I, I, I hope you've never uttered these words, but like it, you hear a lot of people that they're like, especially in Christian circles, they're like, God told me to marry this person. And it's like, okay, uh, it's interesting that that happens to be the first person that's ever liked you back, right? Like that's, that's who God has told you to marry immediately, you know, or not even liked you back. Like, I don't look your general direction, right? And then like, we'll, we'll do things like, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a big game. Like we're like, I'm going to surrender to missions. Like I'm going to go on the mission field, but I can't move out of my parents' house because I don't have enough money. Even though we have enough money, what we mean is I don't have enough money to live comfortably. And it's like, what do you, you think you're going to live super comfortably if you go on the mission field? Like that's probably not how that's going to work. You know, uh, we're, we want to plug in at church. We want to like go be involved and be a part of what's going on in the body of believers until like 30 more minutes of sleep. That really sounds good right about now. And then we just we hit that snooze button, and it's like, that's like the most minor obstacle in the world, and yet now we're not plugging in. We're not coming to things. We're not attending, right? Um, we, we trust in the Lord. We, we know it's about faith, and i got to trust in God, and God's going to handle all my problems. 
And then I get like the slightest bit of social anxiety and I just, I can't do, I'm paralyzed. Can't do anything. Can't participate. Can't be a part of what, what God wants me to be a part of. Or it can be things like, you know, we're told week after week in Sunday school, you know, you're supposed to seek the Lord. You're supposed to seek the joy of the Lord. You're supposed to seek His kingdom first. And then you look around at the circumstances of your life and you're just immediately depressed. You don't actually believe that God has you where you're supposed to be and He's working on you in the place that you are. You're just depressed because you don't have what you want right now. See, we want to follow the Lord until it's hard at all. Whenever we're not clinging to the Lord with everything about us, whenever we're not solely focused on following Jesus with all our hearts, that's when our sin carries us away. That's when our sin attempts to take us captive, attempts attempts to to hold us hostage in this world, and, and we begin to drift. We need a Savior, and we don't just need a Savior. We don't just need to know about a Savior. He needs to be our only hope. He needs to be the only thing we're hoping in, the thing we're clinging so tight to that we'll give up anything else, we'll do whatever it takes to be with Him. Right? Now, it's not because your effort to cling to your Savior is what saves you. It's that He saves you, and how do you know He saved you? Because you are clinging to Him. Because you have seen that He is your only hope. We're in Genesis, and we're following Abram's story. Uh, this series is called The March of Redemption because we're seeing how God's promise to redeem, to save, it's progressing one step at a time through the generations, through the land, and it is always um, saving the humanity in general, but it's also saving those who love the Lord, who are clinging to Him, who are calling out to His name and looking forward to His redemption. Those are the the people that God's redemption is moving through generation after generation. Last week we saw that Lot, he splits from Abram. He forgets what makes the land good. Right? He looks up and he sees good land, but away from God, and he goes there. And the passage foreshadows a bunch of times in chapter uh, 13 to go, this is a bad plan. Leaving, leaving Abram's side, leaving where the blessing and the redemption of God is centered to be anywhere else in the world for any amount of good stuff, it's a bad plan. It's going to leave Lot in trouble. And the, the text foreshadows things are going to get worse for Lot. And this week, we're going to see the consequences of Lot's bad decision-making. See, Lot, we're told at the end of last week, he is dwelling outside of God's land, of God's promises. He went to the fringe. He's, he's just outside of where God is with Abram. So in this chapter, the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to zoom out. We're going to zoom out to a worldwide stage. It's going to be a grand event. We're going to see what's happening in, in kind of the known world. All, all of humanity is designed. The, the, the author is trying to tell you everybody is caught up in this. It's a big deal. It's sweeping the, the world as they knew it at the time. And we're going to see that Lot is taken, capti- taken into captivity by his own decisions, by his own choice to not be where God, ha- where God was. He's now put himself to be vulnerable to what's going on in the world. He's going to be taken captivity by it. Now, I'm going to 
uh, read the first 10 verses of chapter 14 all at once because it is painful uh, to pronounce. And so we're just going to get through it. That way I can just reference it from here. So just buckle in. Uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Aryot, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinav, king of Adma, and Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these kings came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Amim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in, on their Mount Ser, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came in came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who lived in Hazazan Tamar, and the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out, and they lined up for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Kedurlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goyim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Aryuk, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Whew. Okay. All right. So now I'm just going to reference that. We're not going to read any more of that. So, uh, so the first thing I want you to see that's happening here is the Kadurla Omer is like the big name. He's the guy that kind of rules the area that they're, that these other kings are rebelling against, and he's leading this charge. But if you'll notice, the first king mentioned is Amraphel, king of Shinar. And the reason for that is because Shinar is Babel. It's Babylon. What this is doing is this is tying this narrative back into what's happening at a worldwide level. All the nations of the earth. You can almost see this war as a result of what? The division that starts at Babel. See, all of humanity unites. They're going to defy God in this one place. And God messes with their language and scatters them to the earth. And now, what do we have as a result? We have wars. We have kings over different places warring against each other because humanity is no longer united in rebellion against God. Now they're fighting amongst themselves. So that is an intentional reference. It's designed to show us that the things happening in chapter 10 in the Table of Nations, that the, 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 the more specific story of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 with Babel, and now this are all connected. This is the worldwide stage, right? And uh, to make sense of everything that, that you saw there, uh, there's this campaign of this uh, Kadurla Omer, and he is moving through the known world just crushing people. He's created this coalition of kings, and he is going to go crush this other coalition of kings, and he is very successful. He's defeating everyone in this path, and again, all of the descriptions in this portion of scripture are mostly geographic, because the, re the reason for that is that the author wants you to see the massive scale of what's happening. This is a big event, and it's touching just about everybody in the known world. The world is out of control. COVID, politics, your school life, how about just your parents? 
How is your little faith, your individual faith, supposed to guide you through a world that is out of control at every level? See, this is a picture of something massive, something that you can't, like this is just the troubles of man. This is the worries of the world we live in. This is just what the world is, is doing since the beginning. We know there are wars. We know there's chaos. We know there's politics. We know that there's pestilence. There's all kinds of problems. And the question that this story is seeking to answer is how does one man like Lot or one man like Abram navigate this worldwide event they can't have any control over? They can't just make it different. They don't have the power to do that. And the answer has to be that you have to have faith in something bigger than yourself, something that has the power to act in this big world. You have to cling to a big God, and you have to trust Him not only when things are going right. See, that that happens in our life, right? Like, we're content to come to church, we're content to be here, and we're content to trust God as long as all the bills are paid, and, and I've got the roof over my head, and then really we start complaining a little bit when we can't buy the thing we want to buy, the toy we want to buy. But as soon as something goes wrong, God must not be in control anymore. That it, it's, All the oxygen has left the room. My life is misery. But that's not the case, right? We have to have trust in a big God that can handle the events of the world that are all around us, above us, bigger than us, that would squish us like bugs. Look at verse 11. Then they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. That note at the end, it's almost, it's almost like a I told you so moment. Right? The author says, and they got Lot and everything he owns and all his people because he was living in Sodom. It's almost, it's almost a callback. The author's like, remember how I told you he was stupid enough to go live near Sodom? His, he, he joined, he went to this place with wicked men. He went outside on the fringe of what God had. Well, guess what? It didn't work out. Like you couldn't have told that was coming, right? That's the, the tone that's happening in this moment. Lot is paying for living his life in a way that doesn't trust in God, that's not depending on what God is going to do. If, you, if you've been at Tuesday nights, I just finished a series on the book of Numbers. We've been going through it, and I don't know how many of you maybe heard some of these sermons, but one of the things I talked about was there's a, a passage where there's sin in the Israelite camp, and there seems to be a fire uh, that is the wrath of God, and it's ravaging the furthest outside portion of the camp. And if you remember that, what I talked about is the outside portion of the camp, the fringe of the camp, is where you went when you were living an unclean life. When you did something that's unclean, you exposed yourself to the world, and, and were, you left the safety of the camp. You left the presence of the Lord and so then when, when bad things happened, what did they get first? The people that were outside the camp that were unclean, they were the first people to come under the God's, either God's wrath or just the bad things in the world, right? Because they were exposed. They weren't within the confines of God's structure where they were safe. See, that's what's happening to Lot right here. He is 
by his own choice outside the presence of the Lord. He's outside of the protection that God provides for his children when they're with him. See, I, I told you guys in that, in that same sermon, and I, I think it's worth bringing up here, that the people who won't plug in at church, who won't really plug in, right, who won't really get involved in a real way and be in the safety and the structure of the body of Christ, those people, they're self-isolated. They're, they're typically, why, why won't people push further in the presence of the Lord? Typically, it's because they're holding on to something that's an idol. It's a sin. It's, you know, it may even be not inherently a bad thing if they've made it an idol because they've clenched their fist around. And they've said, well, I don't, I don't want to give that to God. That's mine. Right. And what happens is that those people who are self-isolated, who won't push further into the presence of God, who won't connect to the body of believers, they're the first to blame God in the church when things go badly in their life, when they don't have people around them to help them through the trial, through the fire, when they've exposed themselves to the world and the world comes for them, they're the first people to go, well, God failed me. The church doesn't care. Church full of hypocrites. No one even reached out. No one said anything. But the reality is, when, they, when you are not living in the center of God's presence, when you are not seeking, carrying yourself at the cost of anything that would hold you back into the, the safety of God's presence, you are exposed to the grand scheme of the world that is chaos and disorder and captivity. That is what Lot is experiencing right here. He had, tempo, he had faith in the temporal world. He had fake security. An easy way to put this, and maybe it doesn't register with this stage of life, but so many people in our country especially, they trust in their bank accounts. They're, they're safe as long as they can look at their, their, their number in their bank account and see that they have enough money to handle something. That, that they're secure because they have all this money. Listen, I've seen money come and go. I've seen money uh, disappear faster than it appears. There's no, that's a false sense of security. Now, I want you to understand the moral of this story is not bad things only happen when you're outside of, like, when you're disobeying God. Nothing bad will happen to you as long as you have enough faith and you're walking with God. That's not the message. That's not the point, right? There is a difference between bad things happening when you're in rebellion and bad things happening when you're walking in God's will. There's a difference to your perspective. You can see it right here with Lot versus if you know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is taken captive by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. Uh, he's, he's falsely accused of sexual harassment and thrown in jail, right? There's so many things that happen to Joseph, but what's the difference? See, when you're walking uh, in rebellion and bad things happen, it's your fault. You get to shoulder the blame of that bad thing occurring to you. But when you're walking in God's will and bad things happen, you can have confidence in God's plan for your life, that it's unfolding exactly according to the way God means for it to unfold. You don't have to shoulder the responsibility for the bad thing happening and go, yeah, if I had been living better, if I hadn't been walking in my sin, right? And then at that same time, uh, it, if your sin if your sin is the thing, you get to shoulder the responsibility. It's your fault. You are not walking in the center of God's camp and the, the, the world has come for you, right? Then you can be sure that God will still redeem that. God will still take that and he will make that something that is good for you. Here's the difference. 
when you're walking in God's will, the whole point and the whole plan, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to be troubled by it. Now, it doesn't mean you'll never go through something that you will consider hard. But it means you'll look at that and you'll go, I know I'm right where God wants me to be. This is the point and this is the plan. I'm supposed to be here. Versus having to look at your life and go, man, I, I don't know, I could have maybe I could have avoided this. Maybe, maybe this didn't have to happen this way. I mean, it did have to happen this way, right? Because of your actions, right? You can either be shame, in shame, forced to participate in God's will, or you can be you can have gratifying participation where you're glorifying God. Here's the reality. You will participate in God's will for your life either way. There's no way around it. It's going to happen. So you can either participate in it and glorify Him and worship Him, or you can be drug kicking and screaming all the way through it. Here's the, here's the other thing about this, though. When you are walking in rebellion the outcome of God's discipline in your life of something bad happening is supposed to cause you to turn back to Him and worship Him, but there's like a 50-50 chance that you're not just going to rebel more because now you're going to blame God for what's going on in your life. The reality is if you are a Joseph, if you're confident in God's plan for your life, if you're walking in that, in that place where you know this is what God had, then instead you get to worship God the whole time. You get, to, you get to see with eternal eyes the value of what you're going through. You get to be a, a willing participant that is worshiping the Lord. Lot is being carried away by his sin, and he needs rescue. See, that is the message of the gospel. All of us, apart from our Savior, are being carried away by our sin. And you don't have what it takes to not be held captive. Remember, watch just one man in this big, big, grand-scale worldwide event that's happening. He couldn't have stopped being carried away at the point that he was not in the center of God's will, that he was not um, walking in a way that kept him safe. He needs a Savior. And every single one of us, at some point in our life, is being taken captive by our sin. It's trying to carry you away from God. We need rescue from the world. Now, we're about to switch over. We've see, we're seeing how Lot is experiencing this, but now we're going to see how Abram is experiencing this. Look at verse 13. Then a survivor came and told Abram the Hebrew, Now he was residing by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies of Abram, with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, numbering 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Then he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the possessions and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the other people. Okay, so the first thing I want you to see is that Abram is somehow still living peacefully in the middle of all this mess, right? This trial of the world hasn't yet touched him, right? Now, it does touch him. Why? Because he's connected to people that are in the world that aren't living that way, right? You can talk about sin not having only isolated consequences to you. Like your sin, your unwillingness to walk with God, it affects other people. See, Abram, if Lot's with him, we don't know how this story unfolds. We don't know that Abram is even bothered by this mess. But because 
He's connected to people that he loves that are walking in the world. When Lot gets taken, Abraham's, Abram's peace is now disrupted. But I want you to notice this. He reacts just like the good shepherd. He begins to pursue those he loves even though they've gone astray. See, that is the gospel. It doesn't matter if you've gone astray, if you're going astray. It doesn't matter if you are not yet saved or if you've been saved for a long time and you're just off the path. You're stuck in the ditch because you're not walking with God appropriately. It doesn't matter. The reality is the good shepherd is pursuing you. He's coming after you. He doesn't even give it a second thought. As soon as your sin begins to carry you away, God comes to find you. He wants to rescue you from the world. Now, I want you to see something. Abram, in this situation, he follows the law exactly. Now, what am I talking about? In Deuteronomy, there is a series of laws that spell out how you go to war. And, and it's very detailed. But when does Deuteronomy happen? Way after Abram, right? Abram hasn't read Deuteronomy. He's not like, where's that chapter on war, right? Like, that's not what's happening here. So how is it that Abram is so perfectly following the law of God. See, the author is Moses, and he is being very intentional with the message that he's putting across right here. Abram has the law of God written on his heart. See, Abram walks by faith, and because he walks by faith, because he leans in on the Lord, he's automatically doing the things that God wants him to do. Like, it doesn't say it in the text, but we can almost see that Abraham sought counsel from the Lord in this. That Abraham reached out and said, Lord, how do I proceed? How do I go about this? Because God is consistent. God, he is walking with God in this. And God shows him how to go to war. He does everything he does trusting in the Lord. I want you to think about the current audience. right? Moses is writing this. It's being read in the book of Numbers as the people are on the precipice of going into the land, invading. And what do they see? Giants. They see Jericho. They see a bunch of things they can't overcome. And what's the message? It's not on you to figure out exactly how to overcome this. It's not on you to have the battle plan and to do this your way or the way that makes sense to you. Obey and trust the Lord. See, obedience to God is trusting in Him. And trusting in Him looks like obedience. And when you're doing that, you're trusting that God is the one that's overcoming the situation in front of you. See, 318 men are about to set off to battle a guy who just conquered, like, the known world. That doesn't even make sense. That's not the way that we would expect this to go. And yet, He redeems everything. He overtakes this larger enemy. He attacks them at night with a small split-up force they win the battle so drastically that they recover all of the things that were taken, all the loot, and all the people. They redeem everything. See, God is redeeming everything. You need a Savior. You need someone who is rescuing you from the world, rescuing you from the things that are trying to take you captive. The question is, do you trust that doing it God's way is, is the right answer, right? I mean, I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about that there is only one way, and that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And if your trust isn't in God's one way, it's not Jesus plus this, Jesus plus my effort, Jesus plus whatever, having money in my bank account. It's just the work of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what saves you. And that manifests itself in how you walk day to day and how you obey the Lord because you trust Him not just for the one eternal act, but for every small act between now and then. The problem is that life always looks overwhelming. Life always looks too big for us. The good thing is that you aren't the one that has to solve the problem. God is the one who solves the problem. It's your choice. Your choice. You can be in the world or you can be with God. I remember I went to Super Summer as a sponsor one year and uh, it was maybe like I was maybe a sophomore, junior in college and I was just getting my first taste of really kind of walking in the world, doing things my own way, straying a little bit from how I'd been brought up. And um, I remember because I was joining the military, the speaker at Super Summer was an ex-military uh, guy. And so I had had a conversation with him and he invited me to come hang out with him for a while. So we had sat down and had a conversation and I was just telling him about my life a little bit. And I'll never forget what he said to me because I was telling him what I was struggling with and how I was struggling with being in school and kind of, again, getting my first taste of really wanting to not miss out and wanting to participate in the kind of things that go on at college that you grow up knowing aren't right. And he looked at me and he said, well, your problem is pretty simple. He said, you're more afraid of man than you are of God. I'll never forget that because it took me, I didn't really get it when he first said it. And the more I thought about it, the more that it occurred to me that I cared about people's opinions. I cared about what, what people thought about if I was just some weirdo Christian or if I was like involved and plugged in and got to do all the, the cool stuff that everyone else was doing. I did that stuff for a long time and I found out that everybody, everybody doing it is miserable. But it's, it's a charade. It's, a, it's this constant act of gratification, instant gratification that you put on display to the world via Instagram filters to go, look, look at how much fun I'm having. Everything is great. But that's not the case. See, we have a choice. We have a choice between what the world is offering us or what God is offering us. Look at verse 17. Then, after his return from the defeat of Kedurlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet, meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And he gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the possessions for yourself. Okay. So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about this strange character, Melchizedek, that's not going to personally show back up in Scripture, but he's going to be mentioned several, several times after this, right? So there is a popular theory that Melchizedek is a ancient 
pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I really don't think that's what's happening. Um, I think that the reason that we want to see that is because later our New Testament writers and even some things in the Psalms are going to point to Melchizedek as what? A type. You've heard me say that a thousand times. They're going to point to Melchizedek as a type and say this is something about Melchizedek matches who Jesus is going to be, right? It doesn't mean that the guy Melchizedek is Jesus. It just means that something about the about him is is teaching us something about who Jesus is. Now, the first thing I want you to see about Melchizedek that is something that Jesus is, is that he's not just a high priest and he's not just a king. He's a high priest king. This is a weird connection here. See, as even David, David is called the high priest in some places, but even David didn't have the full functioning of the high priest while he was king. He conducted a few high priestly acts, which was unique, but no one besides Jesus is both perfectly the high priest that takes us before God as intercessor and perfectly the king that rules over all of humanity. And so what we're seeing here is this character Melchizedek, he is an example of Christ in that way, that he is both the high priest and the king. It's also evidence that there were people in the world at this time that worshiped the one true God. See, this guy just kind of enters stage left. We've been following Abram. You know, we saw the Noah episode, and we've got this thing in our head that, like, like it is today, like people who don't come to church, they don't even believe God exists. And so Abram and Noah, they're the people that believe God exists, and everybody else just just pagans or atheists, and they don't even know who Yahweh is. That's not true. See, because even in places that Abram is not, where he is not having influence, there are worshipers of the one true God. There are people following Yahweh. That's what we see in this, this character Melchizedek. The other thing you should know is that Salem is Jerusalem. See, but Salem is Jerusalem way before Jerusalem is ever called the city of David. See, God is being worshipped. The one true God is being worshipped in Jerusalem before it becomes the place that is the capital, that is where God will reside in his temple. The choice that we're seeing here is between Salem and Sodom. Though that is what's being offered to Abram in this moment. Salem or Sodom. See, the king of Sodom, uh, the king of, uh, excuse me, the king of uh, Sodom went out. He just, he went out. He just went out to meet Abram. But the king of Salem, he brought out something to give to Abram, to bless him with, to refresh him. Right? So we already have a different mentality of what is being brought to Abram. A blessing or just a greeting, right? And then the king of Sodom, his first words to Abram are, give me this thing and you can take this thing, right? He's, he's immediately negotiating for what things they're each going to take. But the king of Salem, it says he comes out and he blesses Abram. He immediately begins to conduct priestly acts to bless, to bring Abram before the Lord, Right? Um, something interesting in my study was that I think um, it doesn't it doesn't appear this way in the in the NASB, but I think a better translation of verse nineteen is that Melchizedek uh, doesn't say um, "Blessed be Abraham of God Most High," but he says "Blessed be Abraham 
by God Most High. See, why is that important? Because Melchizedek is blessing Abram by acknowledging that the blessing comes straight from God. That God is the reason Abraham is blessed. See, Abram is being given a choice. The choice is to tithe or to take. That's the choice you have in this world, to tithe or to take. See, to tithe is to acknowledge that everything you have is God's, including yourself. Everything about your life, including your own person, is God. See, Abram, in this moment, he tithes to Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth. Right now, first of all, the next time somebody tells you that tithing doesn't apply to Christians because it's in the law and we're New Testament believers, take chapter 14, pre-law, and just slap them in the face with it. Okay? Because the tents already exist, right? The law wasn't created by Moses. Again, the law is on the heart of Abram before it's ever revealed divinely on Mount Sinai. So Moses in this, or uh, Abram in this moment, he's tithing. He's acknowledging that all he has, including himself, is God's. The other option is to take, to get the world, and to lose God. That's the choice you have. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, so that you do not say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and share and the share of the men who went out with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Abraham won't take anything from the world. Now, the first thing I want you to see here is Abram refuses to let the world take credit for his success because he knows that his success is totally based on God and what God is doing in his life. But the other thing that's happening here is that Abram only wants what God gives. Now, this is key. I think the prayer, if we were to all genuinely and regularly pray the prayer, Lord, I only want what you give. I only want what's good in your eyes. I only want what's in your will. You can even take a step back. I tell you guys all the time, you don't have to approach God with the book perfect right answer. You can approach God with where you are. You can take a step back from God, I only want what you have. And you can say, God, I want to only want what you have. Why? What is that? What's the difference there? I'm admitting that right now I want some other, other stuff. I want some things that are not God's. I want some things that, that don't edify me, that don't, that don't take me closer to God. But what I'm saying is, God, I see that I want these things, but I want to only want you. I want to only want what you have. You don't have to be there yet. But take that to God and acknowledge it. If you would pray that prayer regularly and genuinely, if you would let God change your heart to a place where you only want what He has to give, what's good for you from your Heavenly Father, it would solve 95% of your problems. Especially in our American dream, twisted version of Christianity. If we only wanted what God had to give, it would solve so many of our problems. See, Abraham won't even take a shoelace from the king of Sodom. That's what that text says. He goes, I've sworn to God that I won't even take a shoelace from you. I won't, take, I won't let you take any credit, and I don't want anything you have to give. I only want what God has to give. 
You know the test of whether or not you want something for the right reasons? If you want something, ask yourself, will getting this cause me to worship the Lord more? And will not getting this cause me to be upset with the Lord? Right? Because if I don't get this thing and I'm immediately mad at God, it's a good thing I didn't get that. Because it would have been something that took me away from the Lord. Ask yourself this question. Is the Lord enough if I don't get this thing? If God doesn't give me this, is just Him enough? Because if it's God plus that thing, you've, you've misstepped somewhere. You've gone off the path. If the Lord isn't enough without that thing, that thing is trying to take you captive. That thing is trying to kill you and lead you astray, but ultimately it's your choice. Talk about like deficient faith, right? Deficient faith. What if Abram had gone all the way out and and conquered the enemy king and recaptured Lot and said, I got you, you're free. And Lot had been like, well, you know, I I think this was, I think things were going to work out. This is the way I was supposed to go. Right? And just sloughed that off. Like that's what we're in the business of doing all the time. See, no, Lot, Lot in this moment, it is painfully apparent to Lot that he needs to be rescued and that he can't solve the problem himself. He, he made the choice to be on the fringe, to be outside of the center of the camp, and he's been carried away by the worries of the world, by the problems of man. And he knows that he needs to be rescued and redeemed. My question for you is, are you actively letting yourself be carried away? Or are you crying out to God to save you from the things that are trying to take you captive? The thing is, like, there's this moment, right, where Peter is walking on water and he's focused on Jesus and then he looks at the waves and he begins to sink if you read that passage, my favorite word in that passage, he cries out, Jesus, save me. And it says, immediately, immediately, Jesus reached down and grabbed him and pulled him out of the waves. That's so important. If you will cry out to God, if you will look straight to Him, if you will put your trust in Him alone, not in how well you could swim in the waves, or not how close the boat is, but if you will just lock eyes on the throne and, and cry out to God to save you, He will reach down immediately, take you by the hand, and pull you out of the waves. And then you get to walk with Him. Then you get to be with Him. Are you choosing captivity? Are you choosing to drown? Are you letting it happen? Are you crying out to the only person that can save you? Every single day, Jesus.
Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.